Lord Jesus, we love you and adore you. Thank you, Lord, for revealing your glory. Uh, I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today. May you open up your scriptures to us that we might be uh, transformed ourselves into your glory. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So, Winston Churchill uh, was a uh, prime minister of UK during World War II, not a religious man, as will be evident from the quote that I'm about to read to you, Um, but he once said this. He said, one of these days, perhaps the bright light of science and reason will shine through the cathedral walls, and we shall go out then into the fields and seek God for ourselves. The great laws of nature will be understood Our destiny and our past will be clear, and then we will be able to dispense with religious toys. Now, even though that sentiment was was shared quite a few years ago now, that's still very much something that shapes the culture that we are in. Uh, That's probably a statement that uh, perhaps you've wondered yourself or you've heard friends or family members wonder these things. We live in an age where spiritual faith is highly suspect. Uh, There's a suspicion that faith is simply a a tool to control the masses, right? And that's something that probably uh, Churchill would have said. Now, this is not a new concept. Uh, This is not a new challenge against the faith. Uh, In fact, we heard it addressed in the Scriptures this morning. The Bible is aware of this. So, in 2 Peter, the apostle, he is being accused of spreading a lie. And how did he defend himself against that? He says, we did not, we, yeah, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we were up on the holy mountain. I heard the voice myself. So I think that's absolutely fascinating, that when people charge Peter about spreading a myth, he goes to this story, which is perhaps one of the most most mythic stories in the New Testament, apart from the resurrection itself. Like, isn't that interesting? It's like Peter is doubling down, and you can hear the zeal coming from the passage. He's like, I was there. I saw this. And my point is that the transfiguration, this this story that we heard about, that we read today, meant a lot to the early church. This is a story that's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They they all recount this. Uh, Also, John, in his opening words to his gospel, he alludes to it. He says, we beheld his glory. This was a source of hope to the early church, a source of courage to them, that when their faith was rattled, this was an event that they turned to. We beheld His glory. So I wonder why. What is it about the transfiguration that infused the early church with so much godly zeal and passion? Well, one of the things I think is it really happened. This is something that actually happened. Yes, it's, it's a story that's oozing with mythic characteristics, but as C.S. Lewis would say, this is the myth that is true. And if we had time, we could talk about the reliability of the Gospels and how they are a source of of solid trust, how we can reasonably place our faith in them. We could talk about the apostles and how many of them were martyred uh, because of their faith. They would not deny the things that they had seen. 
We could talk about the miraculous spreading of the gospel in the first couple of centuries. What in the world could account for this? These things happened. If you have more questions about that sort of stuff, if those are conversations that you love to have, can we trust the gospels, things like that, uh, after Easter, we're going to do a course here called Alpha. Uh, it's, it's meant for anyone who wants to be reassured of the foundations of faith, whether you are new to the faith or if you've been a Christian for a while and you just need to be reminded of these beautiful things. So stay tuned for that. But what I want to look at this morning is why did the early church place so much of their, uh, why would they find so much courage from this? And how can this bolster our faith today, 2,000 years later? So I've got a few things to point out from this passage. So this is a passage that is soaked in Old Testament imagery. And we don't have time to go through every single one of them, but it is, uh, I've already said oozing once today, I won't say it again, but this is a passage that is soaked with Old Testament imagery. Just a couple of these, though. It takes place on the seventh day. Uh, That is the Lord's day. We are here in this room on the seventh day. Uh, the seventh day is, uh, it, it's, it's the day of new creation, of resurrection. It's also the, it's God's inauguration day of his royal reign of peace, uh, as we read the creation account. This also takes place on a mountain. This is a thin place between heaven and earth. And Jesus is met there with two, by two key figures from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, In years past, when I've preached on this Sunday, I've spoken more about the significance of that. Jesus himself radiates like the sun. It's as if he himself is the embodiment of that that devouring fire that we read about in Exodus. Jesus is the devouring fire in this passage. And then we hear the voice of the Father speak forth from the cloud that cloud of glory that appears many, many times throughout the Old Testament. So we see here clearly that Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. He is walking among his people, revealing his glory to them. But Jesus is also the perfect man. He fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies, which is a way to say he fulfills all the old longings of the people of God, Ever since God spoke to Eve and promised to Eve that one of her offspring would crush the head of Satan, that evil serpent, ever since that promise, the people of God have been longing for freedom, freedom from Satan's oppressive lies, freedom from the sin within us that that bends us, that gives us a proclivity to listen to and to accept the lies of the devil. Ever since then, we've been longing for freedom from the brokenness of this world that manifests itself in our bodies, that manifests itself in creation, in our systems that we build. We've been longing for freedom from these things. In Jesus' day, they knew this in a very acute way as they suffered under the oppression of the Roman Empire. As the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? Will you hide your face from us forever? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Well, there on that holy mountain, God is effectively saying to them, I have not forgotten you. I am with you. Your waiting has not been in vain. It is good to place your hope in me. Salvation is at hand. 
So one of the first things that we can glean from this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our longings. All of those Old Testament promises have their yes in Jesus. So something that really grosses out my children, um, I probably could have made a better transition there, but there we go. Um, Something (laughs) that really grosses out my children is when I kiss their mother in front of them. Um, Yeah, you laugh. Okay, thanks. (laughs) But they will often turn their heads. They'll say things like, ew, and gross. They'll cover their eyes. But I think it's really important for them to hear and see the love that I have for their mother. There are hard things in this life. And I hope that the love that they see between us is an anchor for them. So that when the wind and the waves of this world crash against them, that is something that they can turn to. I have safety in the presence of my mother and my father. I hope there's many other anchors in their lives. Many of you are mentors to my children, and I'm grateful for that. Those, you are anchors in the lives of my children. As the events of the transfiguration unfold, a voice booms from heaven. Talk about an anchor of love for the disciples, right? They are about to walk down from this mountain, and the text tells us that from this point forth, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, that he sees the cross before him, and he marches towards it, unflinchingly so. And the disciples are going to be witnessing the greatest terrors that they've ever seen of their lives. Their faith is going to be rattled before them. But this is an anchor that they can hold on to. Somewhere in their imagination, somewhere in their memory is going to be this event. Hearing God himself say, this is my beloved, they will have this hope within them. Somehow this story is going to be made right again. That doesn't mean that they're not still afraid. That doesn't mean that they don't have their doubts. But they still have this hope within them. The story isn't over. So in a few moments, we're going to be baptizing Maggie, Uh, Maggie Dane, why do we do this? Why do we baptize? Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus tells us to. He commissions the 12. He calls his disciples on multiple occasions and tells them to baptize. And we, the church, walking in that apostolic authority, carry forth that command. We do it. We baptize as a sacrament of the forgiveness of sins, We've talked more, we talked about this last week. In, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I give you the, key, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you set free here on earth will be set free in heaven. And in John's gospel, he says to them, whatever you forgive, those sins will also be forgiven. The church has the authority to forgive sins, to welcome people into the household of the faith. So when we do this, When we practice the sacrament of baptism, this is a place where forgiveness is gifted gifted to those. Not on the basis of the individual, not on the basis of the personality or the charisma of the pastor, but based purely on the promises of Jesus Christ. Sins are forgiven here, and you are brought into the household, into the family of God, which means that you get to share in the love that exists between the Father and the Son. I love that in some church traditions, when they uh, 
portray uh, the Trinity, either in icons or in artwork, it's often uh, portrayed, the Trinity is portrayed at a table, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then part of the table is left open as a way to invite you forward into it. Through the waters of baptism, our sins are forgiven, and we were brought into the fellowship, into the love of the Trinity itself. Praise the Lord. This is a moment where you hear, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. You are mine. That word is proclaimed over you. So often, we are consumed by the lies of this world, and they are loud lies. Satan's voice tells us that we are only as good as the things that we are able to achieve, or the things that we're able to perform or do, or we are only as good as the way that we look. Our identity is placed in so many other things. We hear lies of how we are unforgivable or forgettable or things like this. Martin Luther once said, and Chuck, you're the one who brought this to my attention a few years ago. Martin Luther once said that the business of the Christian, the Christian life, is to crawl back through your past and to remember your baptism. And as we do so, we dig and we, and we crawl past all the noise that have been accumulated over the years until finally you hear the words that were proclaimed to you over your baptism, you are mine, you are mine. God looks at you and calls you beloved. And so the transfiguration is a place where those words are proclaimed again, echoing the same words that were said over Jesus at his baptism. And we are brought into that family of love. So what else can we glean from this? Well, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, 18, Paul says, and we all... With unveiled faces, we behold the glory of our Lord. And in doing so, we are being transformed from the same, into the same image. It almost feels blasphemous to say that. As we behold the glory of God, as we behold His love and forgiveness, we ourselves are being transformed into His likeness. Oh my word, that makes my heart like shake. And he says, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That is what the Christian life is about. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us every week. Because we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Bit by bit. Degree by degree. That word that Paul uses here for being transformed is the same exact word to describe Jesus' transfiguration. So let's, let's step back. Let's rewind for a minute. So when God created man and woman in the garden, they were meant to be icons of God's holy presence. We were meant to reflect his glory to the world. He gave us the authority to name the animals, that is, to bring order to the created cosmos. He told us to steward things in creation. We were charged to explore it. We were meant to bring his glory, to reflect his glory to this creation. But when we sinned, when we, when we fell, we were broken. We, our image became tarnished or stained. And what God is doing through Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless man, is that he is transforming us. He is restoring us back to that original purpose. And that is what we practice here every single week. At restoration, we invite the Holy Spirit into our presence. We confess our faults before holy God. We sing his song. 
We hear His voice. We eat at His table. And in doing so, the Spirit of God changes us, transforms us into the likeness of God. You know that, that, that place where Jesus says, do not, know, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? That's always, that's kind of a strange passage, right? Someone knows what it means. <laughs> um, but I think Anne Murphy was one of those people. Uh, I don't think anyone here knows who Anne Murphy was. She's passed away. She attended the church that, that we went to in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, she was just a, an elderly saint in the Lord. Uh, her son is Chuck Murphy, and if you've been around Anglican circles for a while, uh, if you know what Anglican Mission in America was, um, Chuck Murphy was the chairman of that, and um, Anne was his mother. Anne was so wise and so gracious. She was so just lovely to be around. She was so incredibly humble. Everyone in the room adored Anne Murphy. She would rarely turn the conversation back to herself. Uh, if you asked her about herself, she would often turn, the question, turn it back to you. She'd want to know, how are you doing? How is the Lord at work in your life right now? She'd want to know how she can pray for you. One time, Molly asked her, and how do you raise godly children? And she was like, oh, I don't know. I just point out God's presence in our lives. She would say, you know, if I would see a butterfly, I would point that out to my children and say, what remar how remarkable is our Lord that he would create something, a creature, like a butterfly? And I would turn, turn their attention to the Lord. Whenever she led a Bible study, the room would be packed because whenever you would hear her open up the scriptures, it was as if she was reflecting on a conversation that she had just had with Jesus the other day. Uh, she used to lead a Bible study in our living room and uh, we still have that chair. It looks, it's got flowers on it. We call that the Ann Murphy chair. And sometimes when I need some encouragement, I sit in the Ann Murphy chair. Um, some of you have probably sat in it and unknowingly have been blessed by Ann Murphy. <laughs> what am I, why am I going on and on and on about Ann Murphy? Because I think the transfiguration is a token of hope for us. You see, in Jesus, we see the glory of God. And we see what our ultimate destiny is. That's what Paul was talking about. And Anne was a woman who was being transformed by Jesus Christ. She was glorious. Everyone around her knew that. You couldn't help but feel like you had encountered Jesus by encountering Anne. And actually, I shouldn't say she was glorious because she's with him right now. She is truly and absolutely glorious. So in Jesus, we have that hope of glory. I think that's why the early church was so excited about this passage, because they saw what, what we as humanity, as men and women, are, were made for. We see what our ultimate destination is, that we are meant to be like this. Not a light that comes from our own selves, but a light that reflects Jesus Christ and his beauty. So as I mentioned, we are about to descend into the season of Lent. So this week, uh, Ash Wednesday will begin the 40 days of Lent. Uh, we have two Ash Wednesday services here, by the way, on Wednesday. One's going to be at noon, one's at 7. The services are identical. Uh, you don't need to come to both unless you want two crosses of ash on your forehead. Then come. <laughs> uh, but there's many, many events that are happening, and I would encourage you to go down into the fellowship hall after the service to our resource fair and learn about those events. We don't offer these events just to pack the calendar, 
We offer these events because Lent is a spiritual pilgrimage. We are walking alongside the glorious Jesus Christ. These events are invitations to fight off evil, to pray against the devil, to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and expose the sin that is within us so that we confess it and that we can lay it before his cross that he might take it away from us. These are opportunities to quiet ourselves in the, in the beauty and in the sacredness of God's space. These are opportunities to have your faith bolstered by the presence of Jesus Christ. So I pray that throughout this Lent that you would encounter Christ in all of his glory through the scriptures, through the fellowship of one another, through the practices of the church. May you encounter Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of our longing. He is the answer to all the injustice in the world, to all the brokenness in the world, the pain of this world. All of that rests in Jesus Christ. He is the one who welcomes us into the family of God, that we get to share of that love of God, that we get to hear the words beloved proclaimed over us. And there will be a day in which he gathers all of his redeemed people, the saints of old and those who are still living will be gathered together and he will say over all of us, rise and we will rise. And then he will say, have no fear and fear will be banished from this world and all things that cause fear will disappear, they'll disperse, they will be plunged into the depths of the sea and will never emerge again. And then we will sit at table with him and we will bask in his glory. As we are reminded every single week in our liturgy, we will see him face to face. But for now, things are a bit dark. We enter into the realities and the brokenness of this world. So my prayer is that in the midst of it, we get glimmers of that glory. That he would grant us a bit of faith. Faith through one another, faith through an encouraging word, faith through the scriptures, but that we would have a little bit of faith that would be able to nourish us through the journey. So to that end, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, this is a troublesome world, Lord, where the wind and waves of this world toss us to and fro. The lies of Satan are so loud, Lord. So I pray that for all of us here who are baptized, that we would remember the words that were spoken over us, that we belong to you. And Lord, for those who aren't, who want that reassurance, Lord, who want to hear that word spoken over them, Lord, may you give them the courage to step forward, to receive this free gift from you. And Lord, I pray for our church, that as we ourselves are tossed to and fro from the waves, that you would protect us, Lord, that we would be an ark a place where people can come and be nourished by you, where we can encounter you. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.